Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Svedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. This week's episode is with Mallory Quinn. Mallory is Director of Cultivation for MedMen in New York. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, president of Dr. Greenhouse and host of The Doctor Is In. Welcome to our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Mallory Quinn, director of cultivation at MedMen, a cannabis cultivation operation that spans several states in the U.S., but she is in New York. Hi, Mallory. It is so great to have you on our What Plants Crave podcast series. I'm super excited to learn more about you, about the plants you grow, um, and the quirks of growing horticultural plants using controlled environment agriculture. Welcome. Thank you so much, Nadia, for having me today. Um, Really appreciate the thought and the fact that I came to mind when you were looking for people to discuss controlled environment agriculture on your podcast. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So, you know, just to kick things off and to get started, what has been your path to get to where you are today? How did you fall in love with plants and with horticulture and controlled environment agriculture and eventually land on cannabis? Well, going way back, I grew up in a very rural area. Um, My mother did a ton of gardening. I was always surrounded by a lot of plants and kind of always had an affinity for them. As a young adult, I didn't really know what direction I was going in, but I knew that I loved plants and I wanted to explore that more. So I ended up studying um, environmental studies. And one of those introductory courses was, of course, botany. And that just really took my attention immediately. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do. After school, I ended up doing an internship with a company called Dickman Farms. They had about 10 acres at the time of uh, greenhouse for ornamental production. And they also serve as a ball rooting station. So that was kind of the density of their business was uh, rooting cuttings and uh, popping seed for ball um, and their associated distributors. So I did that for a couple of years. I got to work alongside some really talented growers and I got to learn a ton about Um, the ins and outs of controlled environment ag in terms of greenhouse growing and all the equipment that comes along with that and how to produce plants at scale, uh, which has been super helpful leading into cannabis. Um, Before I graduated with my bachelor's in plant science from SUNY Cobleskill, I had a majority of my professors at the time encouraging me to explore cannabis as a career path. Um, And it was something I was certainly interested in and passionate about, but it didn't really cross my mind that this would come to fruition and be a legitimate career path. I think I was a sophomore in college at the time that Colorado legalized cannabis recreationally. And so that really kind of turned, turned the times and looked as though it was a promising career path. So um, after working with Dickman Farms for a couple of years, the East Coast started to kind of catch on to the Green Rush phenomena, and then New York State rolled out their 
medical program and granted five licenses, one of which ended up in MedMen's hands. So um, MedMen took over operations for Bloomfield Industries, which was one of the five original licensees in New York State back in late 2016. And I connected with Damien Solomon actually on LinkedIn regarding the acquisition in New York and we just kind of hit it off. And that was kind of my gateway into the industry. And I have been with MedMen ever since. That's amazing. In my previous life, not that far away, but uh, before I started Dr. Greenhouse, the company I worked with, we got hired to compete, to do the design, to compete for one of those five lucrative licenses in New York. And one of our projects came in seventh place. I think the other one was like 18th or something like that. Just out of curiosity, like thinking about that. I mean, what is going on in New York right now with cannabis? I mean, (laughs) how are you keeping up? Oh man, that's a great question. Well, New York has been so slow to adopt so many things that other states are doing and doing well. You know, we're on the heels of Grec it's been passed, but it had they, the state hasn't actually rolled out like an official an official protocol for growers and operators as to how we are going to take it to market, and that's in the works and supposed to come to us in time for what they've projected sales to start in December of this year. So the clock is ticking. Um, What's the hangup? That's a great question. I'm not entirely sure. I know we have a newer governor. But it's my understanding that she's really passionate about the program and that she wants to, you know, move forward as quickly as possible. And her and her office have certainly made more progress on that than Governor Cuomo previously did. So that's encouraging, but there's still really not a clear path forward and just kind of kind of come when it comes, I guess, which has been the case in other states. And fortunately, we have that MedMen has that experience elsewhere where we can kind of anticipate to an extent what to expect and, and adapt to prepare for that for sure. So in, um, you're in Utica, is that right? or thereabouts. Are you growing in a greenhouse or an indoor facility? We are in a warehouse currently. You're in a warehouse. Okay. Mm -hmm. I imagine if you were trying to grow in a a greenhouse, especially with the weather you're having right now, that would be pretty challenging, but do you think you could do it? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I cannot wait for that day either. I know it's, I know it's being done um, by some of our competitors and we've been successful in doing it in other states too. And, um, you know, my time at Dickman's has prepared me for producing cannabis in a greenhouse and in New York weather conditions, as long as we have the right equipment selected and, you know, hopefully an engineer like yourself on the job when it comes time for that. So. um. Yeah. I imagine it's a complete switch of the type of systems that I'm sure you're thinking about with your warehouse facility than what you would have in a greenhouse, right? A greenhouse you'd be more focused probably on on heating and less on cooling and maybe changing the strategy on lights, right? This year, time of year, maybe supplemental lighting. Absolutely necessary. <laughs> yeah. So how, how did the experience that you had with ornamentals prepare you for growing cannabis flower? I mean, are they similar? Are they really different? Oh, there's a ton of similarities from start to finish. The kind of care, attention, and inputs that are required are all fairly standard with cannabis being kind of new. A newer crop that we are continuing to learn about every day, we have a tendency to approach it with a little bit more concern or feeling that it needs some things that are extra and special. And, you know, I think that that's the case to an extent, but 
I, I like to kind of go back to my roots, um, no pun intended, with just, you know, your average, your average plant, what does that need? And it needs, um, you know, certain environmental conditions that are going to support its, its growth habits in a healthy and productive way. And so that we can maintain a, you know, consistent production schedule. So what, what are the benefits of growing cannabis or any horticultural crop indoors and in a greenhouse? So I think both growing scenarios have their pros and cons. Indoor growing, it can be quite energy intensive and facility design with, with cannabis, especially being a newer crop. The way that a facility is mapped in terms of the layout of the rooms and the equipment that's specced for the job and making things ergonomically efficient for labor and things of that nature definitely come into play. Having a supplemental lighting or just consistent lighting outputs can be a huge advantage to growing indoors versus growing in a greenhouse. There's less kind of things that have to be adjusted on a seasonal basis. You can Generally speaking, if you've picked out the right equipment and it's working the way that you intend it to, you can experience essentially the same exact grow, uh, growing conditions seven days a week, all year round. Whereas in a greenhouse, you're having to adjust and adapt and maybe have a more kind of robust and intuitive operating system as far as your environmental controls goes that can pivot and react to the changes that are that are happening, um, not only seasonally, but just minute by minute, the changes that can happen as far as the external conditions go, whether that be temperature or humidity, uh, sunlight intensity, and things of that nature. As someone who started with greenhouse nursery production, horticulture, moving indoors, was that an easy transition? Uh, were there challenges that you weren't expecting growing in, in a warehouse environment? That's a really good question. There were certainly some learning curves, like on a personal level, being indoors and not having like the natural light was kind of an adjustment. You know, we're in an enclosed space. We don't really get to see the daylight, especially this time of year. We're coming to work when it's dark. We're leaving work when it's dark. So that was an adjustment. But as far as growing goes, I, I'm sure that that was kind of more what you were asking is not being able to get as messy, I guess, as you could in a greenhouse. Like if you were to have floor drains and you're just kind of hosing away like any mess that you make or being in a warehouse space there and especially with cannabis there's a certain amount of cleanliness that needs to be maintained that in a greenhouse wasn't really a thought of mine back in my ornamental days I kept a very clean greenhouse space but couldn't do the same things that I do with cannabis as far as like having water expel onto like a table or a floor or dropping soil somewhere you know those are all potential vectors for issues why is that okay in a greenhouse uh, uh, I guess in a greenhouse the issue can kind of take care of itself. Like you sweep, clean your floors regularly. You have sanitation products that you can, you know, hose onto the floor and go down the drains. You know, there's, there's still a certain amount of concern for things like that in the greenhouse. But when you're growing ornamentals, there's, I, I guess, a lot less risk that that poses to the crop as far as pathogens or contaminants that could jeopardize your end product, as is with cannabis. Okay, so psychologically, a switch, a flip of, of not being sort of exposed to the outside uh, or to sunlight, and maybe just how you maintain the facility is a little bit different. Was it when you went into a warehouse, you're like, oh my God, this is like so easy. 
because uh, I don't have to deal with like constantly changing weather conditions and sun conditions. I just literally flip things on and off and uh, it takes care of itself. I did have that experience um, growing indoors, you know, with the uh, equipment that we were able to, to get into, into play and, and set up on our controlled system. I mean, it was essentially plug and play made my job very easy. There were still some learning curves having come from the greenhouse space. Um, another challenge that I kind of ran into was one of my first lessons um, was managing BPD. I had a couple of rooms that were running exceptionally drier, especially like in the winter months when the relative humidity here is naturally very low. And it took me a little while to figure out what the heck the problem was. I could see a really negative plant response and I just simply couldn't figure out what the issue was because it had never occurred to me growing in a greenhouse that humidity I think is naturally a bit higher, especially if you're in a more humid region, which central New York generally is depending on the time of year. That wasn't something that I had to concern myself so much with back when I was growing ornamentals or veggies that, that kind of took care of itself. But growing cannabis indoors, here in a warehouse when the humidity is lower and you've got the LED lights that are running, you know, not putting out nearly as much heat as like HPS fixtures would, for example, but still a good amount of heat is generated from those. And so we've got our HVAC system working overtime to cool the rooms. And while they're cooling, they're also dehumidifying. So that was one of my first lessons growing cannabis indoors was that relationship with temperature and, and relative humidity really needs to be managed in order to steer the crop where you want it to go. Interesting. What, if you can, what were some of the plant responses or some of the observations you made of the plants when the environment was too dry, when the VPD was high? So increased transpiration rates, plants drying out more quickly. We saw a little bit of like burning to the foliage, like necrosis on the margins and in the leaf tips, for example, and just overall like stunted growth, like plants were not moving along at the pace that that was expected. It sounds like leaf tip burn (laughs) with a lettuce plant. Yeah, that's really interesting. We've uh, started to notice that as more custom HVAC equipment um, has become available for indoor farms, you know, originally growers, uh, especially cannabis growers, I'm not sure where it came from, probably because of high pressure sodium lights, were targeting these low temperatures and humidities, right? Like 75 degrees and 50%, probably in part also because they never had good humidity control with their, you know, little residential split units from Home Depot. And so they were just asking for these really low humidities. And now we have this equipment that can do it. But now people like you who are, you know, saying, hey, I want to control the VPD, all of a sudden this equipment is over dehumidifying. It's overdoing what we really want it to do because of some sort of legacy set point conditions based on legacy equipment and and cultural practices, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a concept that the drier, the better. And some, I think some people apply that in all phases, which is really interesting because even and veg and clone, yeah, like clone, oh, no. um, and and stock plants to some extent too, like need a certain amount of moisture in order to thrive. And so it's interesting, but I, it somehow works for some people. I don't know, but for us, yeah, we we generally prefer to run lower VPD and propagation stock and veg and even early phases of flower, and we'll we'll kind of tune that in as the crop develops. But yeah, that's something that we 
we pay close attention to, and there's a very clear plant response when you do that. Well, thank you for bringing up my favorite subject of VPD. So <laughs> give this girl a badge. Um, <laughs> so how do you know if a plant is happy or stressed? You mentioned high transpiration rates. Did you see that you needed to irrigate more because of the high transpiration rates or just that your plant wasn't keeping up? Yeah, that, this is really jogging my memory because it was so long ago. We were in Rockwell at the time, and I do recall having to do extra irrigations. And as far as indicators that the plants were unhappy, like I said, there was stunted growth. I want to say that a lot of the foliage was kind of underdeveloped, like undersized in the, in the newer growth. Also, the necrotic tips were all indicators. But as far as like other visual indicators that a plant's unhappy, um, you know, there's a handful. There's wilting you know, which can be associated with overwatering or underwatering. It can also be associated with a, like a root-borne disease or I'm sorry, waterborne disease in the root system. It's not allowing the plant to take things up as it should. The color to the foliage outside of the obvious, like spotting um, or stippling that could be from an insect feeding or it could be from a nutrient deficiency. And where in the canopy is that happening? are all things that have to be explored in order to really troubleshoot what's going on. Interesting. We, we've had a couple of our guests talk about over and underwatering, and it seems like most of our expert growers are saying that the tendency is more to overwater than to underwater, and that really has a negative impact that people aren't paying att enough attention to. Would you say that's the same? Yes. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I, I feel like that's across the board. That's not even really a cannabis specific thing. I think that that plagues um, a lot of growers and, and all sorts of crops and even the, the plants that some of us like to keep at home. That's just like number one mistake that that folks make is assuming that a plant needs more water or responding to what appears to be a, a stress with water. Like that's going to solve whatever the issue could be. And oftentimes that ends up worsening whatever the issue is. If, even if it's not related to water, it can certainly exacerbate whatever stress the plant is going through. So my general rule of thumb is to be very conservative with water and especially cannabis. I think we've learned over the years that that is a plant that really likes to run on the drier side or go through cycles of wet and dry and that can be a tough thing to teach and to monitor, but it's really, really important to make sure that your teams and the folks that are working with you and under you understand that less is more when it comes to irrigating, especially with cannabis. Nice. Um, so you probably wouldn't recommend growing cannabis where the roots are submerged in water, like that type of a hydroponic system? I don't think that I would, but I've honestly never tried it. I know actually we had a we had an employee here this past summer that came uh she she had to do like a final project. She came from the same school I did from Cold Skill and they had a hemp program that was just starting to develop and they did like um uh aquaponic hemp project that was really cool. So I think it's I definitely think it's possible um to be grown in a system of that nature, but if you're growing in any other media you don't want to keep that plant constantly wet. And, and that has a lot to do with the amount of oxygen that the, that the root zone is able to get. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that if, if you started a plant with roots emerged and then carried it all the way through its life cycle, that that would maybe be more beneficial? You'd see more positive outcomes than if you started in rock wool or a drier media and clone and veg uh, and then tried submerging it in flour. Would you just shock it? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure I would recommend that, but I know there's different medias that are used for like aeroponics type systems, um, like the clay pebbles. I know that that's super common in like veggies as well. There's, there's so many different ways to mm-hmm. grow a plant uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like media and structure. So, you know, has, has COVID affected you guys at all? Absolutely. COVID has affected everyone. <laughs> I can't believe believe it's it's already been years years it's nuts I know hopefully we emerge out of this sooner than later um has it been all negative or has there been some positives have you guys seen an increase in demand have I don't I don't know that's a great question I I honestly couldn't speak to demand I'm I'm really not too engaged when it comes to retail but as far as how it's affected our operations like day to day, uh, I feel like people are a little bit tuned in more, really wanting to take their knowledge and skill to the next level. Um, I've, I've, had, uh, I've been really fortunate to have a team that is super passionate and collaborative and is constantly wanting to try new things. And they're just constantly presenting new ideas and uh, and trials to the point that I, I sometimes have a hard time keeping up with it. But yeah, COVID's been tough, I would say, primarily with like supply chain, securing inventory of products and <clears throat> and doing that, that on a consistent basis and pricing fluctuations have been kind of all over the place. Um, I'm really fortunate to have a great relationship with all of our vendors and <clears throat> they've been really solid about communicating if and when they expect a shortage of something or um, just kind of being really proactive about making me aware of placing orders of certain products ahead of time if they're anticipating issues with it later on down the line. And we've been really lucky to not have any any issues with that here in New York, but I know that it's affected our teams far and wide. And I know that the rest of the industry is feeling that impact as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the entire horticultural industry is dealing with shortages on everything from media to fertilizer to even HVAC equipment. I mean, it's it's so interesting that with HVAC equipment, it's it's all different types of materials, chips, you know, being able that that are used to operate fans or or do the programming and and decide where to cool or dehumidify and heat. Um, are short are in short supply, of course, uh, as everybody knows, these microchips are in short supply. Even just some of the materials. I mean, we've had some manufacturers say that, you know, they can't get this type of steel. So they're switching to like a poly extruded plastic or, you know, something else and, and substituting materials basically to still fulfill orders. So it, I don't know when this is going to end, but Uh, It does make us all a little craftier, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. craftier and and conservative, right? With like, yeah, that we do have, like, how can we make this last as as long as possible and get the, get the most bang for our buck? Um, It's funny you bring up like the, uh, the manufacturing stuff with HVAC equipment, because we actually have had that headache uh, as of the past, well, I would say COVID related. So the past year and a half to two years, 
with securing um, replacement parts for repairs for HVAC equipment that's aging and, and in need of updates or replacements. That's been tough. Uh, it's been tough to secure uh, those components. Yeah, I believe that. I know also early in COVID, it was really hard to get filters for HVAC equipment because all of a sudden everyone was upgrading their filters to try to, you know, remove uh, any potential viruses and contaminants. Did you guys also have a short supply of filters early? Yeah, short supply of filters, gloves, face masks. I mean, just the general PPE that we need to do our job, you know, safely and and to follow good manufacturing practices and make sure that our end products are not jeopardized. I mean, just those those things became very difficult to secure. And we had to, you know, like you said, get crafty with how we were using stuff. And, um, you know, we have different, <laughs> different kinds of gloves that we use for different processes because we know those ones are hard to get. But for this practice, you know, you might not need that, that mill thickness or- Interesting quality for certain tasks. So, so yeah, it's, it's been fun to say the least. You know, on, on this topic, I heard this, and this was a while ago, uh, maybe also when it first started that some of the biological control agents, like some of the beneficial insects were also hard to come by. Did you find that? And maybe you can talk a little bit about IPM and some of the sanitation practices that you guys employ there. Oh, sure. I'd love to. Um, you know, I can't recall a disruption in the supply chain with beneficials, at least not the predators that we use or the companies that we work with. There, I want to say there was maybe one or two weeks within the past two years where we did have a little bit of a gap in terms of being able to secure certain predators, but it was it was really insignificant. It didn't like negatively impact us. And it was just for like a brief moment of time. And I don't know that it was COVID related, to be honest. Um, but we haven't had any trouble keeping beneficials in-house and, and getting them on time and lively and stuff. So super grateful for that. What kind of beneficials are you using? What kind of practices do you guys employ to keep a clean and insect pathogen-free space? That's a good question. So we use a combination of predatory mites. We use, uh, I'm going to butcher the scientific name because it changed like three or four years ago and I refuse to adopt that new name, but. It changed? Uh, yes. <laughs> Who changes scientific names? I'm not sure. So it's hypoaspis miles and now it's called like stradiolapsis something or other, but I just refer to it as hypo because that's just what I know it to be. So. And it's way more fun to say. Yeah. <laughs> so the hypo um, is a predatory mite that we apply to our media and that is one that will go after soil dwelling pests, so thrips larvae or fungus net larvae. Uh, we introduce that biweekly. <clears throat> we also use parasitic nematodes, which are super common. We use cucumeris, which is another predatory mite, as well as swirsky. And between those two, uh, we use one in like our stock prop and veg areas, and the other more so in flower. Um, just kind of based on their tolerance to like certain environmental conditions and also knowing that they're generalists. Uh, so they cover a wide variety of pests, but wanting to keep them separate because in the event that there are no pests, which is ideal in our case, uh, they'll actually end up eating one another. So I have a, a question about mm -hmm. using beneficial insects. Why are they not considered 
bad. I mean, <laughs> I mean, okay, first off, I get that they're eating. Okay. So you have the bad insect that's like probably eating some leaves or like damaging your plant and maybe like, you know, that type of thing. And so then you get the insect or whatever to like eat that insect so that it'll stop harming it. And it's like, as long as it has like something to eat, it's fine. And, but like, could you have residual beneficial insects on your product at the end that you're trying to get rid of? Like what happens to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And that like good bugs, quote unquote, good bugs can certainly have uh, negative repercussions if they're not used properly. So uh, one thing that we do is we just avoid uh, dispersing beneficial insects in later stages of flower. Generally speaking, it's not necessary because if we have, if we've had a pest issue, and we've done our jobs, we've caught it early enough that we're not having to do continued introductions later in flower. So we're usually cleaning up the problem, stopping it in its tracks, ideally, whether that be on stock plants or in propagation or veg. Generally speaking, it doesn't move past those three phases. And if it does, then you know, we're, we're getting kind of hard on ourselves for having overlooked something. So we, we prefer not to use BCAs in flower or just in later stages of flower. Uh, we do preventative introductions in early flower, like before the flower begins to develop. But depending on the cultivar, you head into like week four or five and, you know, we get that trichome production and the flower development in that the resin that the plant is uh, creating ends up trapping insects and could certainly end up in your end product. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So before those oils get sticky, you, you try not to have any beneficial insects at that point. Correct. And kill all the bad, all the bad bugs before then. Yeah. That makes sense. Folks don't really use like the lower flowers, kind of like lower grade. Maybe it doesn't get used or it goes to extraction, but those can kind of be like a visual indicator of if you've had any insect activity, because if they're traveling up the plant, depending on where you've placed the insects or the sachet or whatever it is that you're using to to introduce the bugs that those lower flowers can kind of act as like a trapper um, and an indicator of like, if you have any activity, but, but yeah, like I said, we don't typically introduce BCAs on flowering plants or like late flowering plants, unless we have like an active issue that, that would require it. Why use beneficial insects and, and biological control rather than pesticides and fungicides and other chemicals? They're really efficient at what they do as far as if you, oh, by the way, something I meant to mention, um, I, I, I mentioned specifics about the predators that we use, but I, do, I by no means am suggesting that those are the ones that, you know, any given grower should be working with. You want to definitely partner with an insectary and a sales rep that, that can kind of cater uh, a program with beneficial insects based on your crop and your growing environment and what pests you have concerns with. But the benefit to using them is if they're used properly, if they're introduced early enough um, and they're introduced at like a rate and a frequency that's uh, conducive to whatever concerns you have, you can eliminate or avoid issues altogether as far as pest damage goes. And if it's done in such a way that you've calculated the rates and the scheduling properly, it can actually be really cost-effective as compared to using uh, chemicals. And I mean, there's no, correct me if I'm wrong, but are there any labeled products for 
growing cannabis? I think there are. Yes. Okay, good. Okay. Cause I feel like maybe there weren't for a long time. Yeah. As of the past couple of years, there's a handful that have been able to get cannabis specifically on their labels, but I don't think there's many. How can there be products that are labeled if they're federally regulated? Aren't they regulated by like the FDA or the USDA or something like that? That, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, but I know a handful of products have a, a, or a handful of manufacturers have achieved that on certain products over the past couple of years. And it, it really is kind of a state specific thing as far as like what products you're able to use on cannabis. Like, of course, the process here in New York is like, generally speaking, it needs to be something that's approved for use on veggies, but it also has to be run through the DOH as well as the DEC to determine if it's you know, appropriate for use on cannabis. And in Florida, for example, we're not able to apply anything to the crop down there that wouldn't be allowed to be applied on tobacco. Tobacco. Mm -hmm. So that's very limiting to us. And is tobacco like the standard because you smoke tobacco and you smoke cannabis? I would assume so. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So of course it's state specific. That makes perfect sense. So you made a comment about using uh, beneficial predatory insects. If you had a good plan, that it could actually be very efficient and cost-effective. Along that uh, track of thought, what does efficiency mean to you? How do you guys apply efficiency? You know, how does it play into the decisions that you make or how you're operating? So efficiency to me is reducing the amount of touches in a process. That is like, thank you for saying that. That is, I feel like that's like traditional horticulture mentality, reduce Mm -hmm. the number of touches. Mm -hmm. What's unfortunate and something that I think we're all learning to kind of grow out of, and and that's really commonplace in cannabis, is like we love to put our hands on our plants as many times as we possibly can. And the reality of that is it's just, it's extremely inefficient. It's not practical long-term or at scale. I mean, that is something I love about cannabis growers is I feel like cannabis growers really love their plants Mm -hmm. and like, it's like this love affair or something. So I get that, but yeah, I mean, touching the plant, you can transfer diseases, of course. I mean, like literally touching that plant, but also like you're saying with efficiency, what, what are some of the horticultural practices that you would like to see more of in cannabis uh, that would increase efficiency? I would say automation is probably the bigger one. And I know that that's a hot topic in the industry and something that we've come a long way with uh, over the past few years. Automating what? Everything possibly can, honestly. Like I know something that's super common, even on large scale farms, which always blows my mind is the way in which we choose to approach propagation. It seems very common for growers to kind of use like the traditional 10 by 20 trays with 50 or 78 cell tray inside of it with all of your cuttings and you're putting a dome on top of it. And every day you're taking the dome off and you're looking inside and maybe you're doing a foyer feed or you're checking for rooting bigger and and that's just extremely labor intensive and time consuming and unnecessary. So how how does traditional horticulture do that propagation differently? So in traditional horticulture, you're going to see uh, cuttings uh, maybe on like an open bench with biotherm underneath to keep the 
media warm and conducive to root development, you might see radiant heat underneath that table to support that as well. For irrigation, um, like an automated boom that can pass over the top of the seedlings or cuttings, um, depending on, on which way you've decided to approach that, that can deliver water to the plants with a variety of different mist nozzles and spray settings, and also different feeds to choose from as well, so that you have kind of versatility there is how, if I were designing the perfect greenhouse for large-scale cannabis production, that is, uh, that, that's what I would be doing. But I guess what I was seeing is, unfortunately, a lot of nurseries, whether even if they are in greenhouses or indoor, seems that seems to be kind of like a legacy practice that some folks have really held on to as far as having like hundreds of trays of clones that are having to be manually cared for on a daily basis. And that's, you know, a huge time suck. That's huge. You know, thinking back on like heat mats and, you know, that sort of root zone heating to encourage root development. I think in our five years at Dr. Greenhouse, I think we've only designed maybe two or three facilities that had heat mats or radiant heating at the root level um, on the client's request. Yeah, I'm thinking about that now and and we might be missing an opportunity there. Uh, Because when I do, I think about nursery production of ornamentals or, or, or of any vegetable crop, whatever it is. The greenhouses are filled with benches that have radiant heat. Uh, at the root zone uh, on the on the bench itself, whether it's hot water or it's an electric heat mat, whatever, it doesn't matter. And yeah, I guess we don't see that in clone and propagation. Missed opportunity because it will it will certainly shave time off of that propagation. So much. And, and don't you think the the quality of the leaves of the plant could be better too? Like I just whenever I see those domes, I cringe just a little bit when I see the tips of the plant you know, it kind of squished up against the dome. And then there's this other practice of cutting the tips, which people say, oh, that like stimulates growth. I mean, does that really stimulate growth or is it just so that the plant stops touching the side of the dome? Yeah, that's a good question and seems to be something that uh, growers are, are in an ongoing debate about. Um, I, I think it's more so to decrease like the density um, and the, the amount of leaf surface that's like overlapping within the tray. But but yeah, ideally, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of how do you take that traditional kind of like greenhouse nursery type of setup indoors. And I mean, you could by all means have a, an indoor space that's set up kind of like a germ chamber. Like you've got mists, you've got floor drains, and you're maintaining an environment that's conducive to, to that phase. Yeah, yeah. I can happily report that more and more of our clients are choosing not to use domes and to use the room as the dome. And and then we just humidify the room rather than let the plant sort of humidify itself. And so far the feedback has been good and I'm sure it reduces labor tremendously. That's awesome. And and that's totally, that's totally attainable if you've got dedicated space for that. I know a lot of growers have, have kind of mixed growing areas where they've got maybe their stock plants and their veg plants and their uh, cuttings in the same area. And I, ideally each one of those phases would have its own dedicated space so that you could do something along those lines and not have the other neighboring plants negatively impacted. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you mentioned earlier tracking VPD and, and we talked about, you know, the indicators of a happy or stressed plant. What metrics, what are you, what are you guys measuring and monitoring? What are you looking when you walk in to the farm every morning or leave? Um, what are you looking for to know that your the environment you've created, that the water that you're delivering is within your control parameters? So uh, my, my typical routine is to do a crop walk every morning. I like to go look at all the rooms and all the plants um, and just kind of get a visual assessment. And then from there, I'll take it to the computer and I'll look at our climate graphs from the previous day or two and just kind of see how did our equipment perform? Were there any anomalies in, in any of the variables that we're most concerned with? So like BPD temperature, relative humidity, CO2, and lighting. And as far as data that we're looking at to kind of see like uh, if we could have steered the crop differently or if there was an opportunity to optimize a, a certain batch, give it more of what it wanted, we're looking at all those things I just mentioned. So VPD, temperature, relative humidity, CO2, we're also paying really close attention to our irrigation and fertigation practices. We're taking a look at what volume of feed are we delivering? Um, you know, what is the EC, what is the pH of both the feed and the leachate? We're also monitoring the volume of the leachate, I'm looking at what time of days we're irrigating and when the leachate is actually being produced. Those are all things that we're looking at on a daily basis. Why are you looking at the volume of leachate? We're looking at the volume of leachate because we want to determine if we are expelling enough water so that we're not getting a buildup of salts in the media. And we're also wanting to know if we're overwatering too. Like if we have an abundance of leachate, um, you know, that's going to be an indicator that maybe we're watering a bit too much mm -hmm. or just not the right time of day. Can you say what kind of media you're growing in? Oh, absolutely. We're growing in cocoa core. Cocoa core in like five or seven gallon pots or something, if, you, if we're talking about flour. Actually in flour, we've got kind of a funny system. Like it depends on the cultivar because we, uh, we've got a wide variety of cultivars that we have found thrive in, at different planting densities and therefore different size media. Interesting. But generally we're in a four liter uh, cocoa pot which is equivalent to like a one and a half to two gallon, if I'm not mistaken. That is small. Yes. Wow. Interesting. So, I mean, I, I want, the reason I followed up on this volume of leachate is I love that you are measuring this because I want all growers to measure this in some ways for selfish reasons, because we want to do a better job, you know, as much as possible, validate our evapotranspiration rate model. So we have an internal model that we use uh, to estimate that. And when we ask a grower how much they're irrigating, right, their plants, and then we do this model based off of all your environmental conditions that you just described, sometimes they don't match. And sometimes they're wildly different. And, mm -hmm. and usually where they're different is that our number is less mm -hmm. than the irrigation rate, right? I mean, always it's less than the irrigation rate. And then when we ask them like, what's the percent drainage? They'll say, oh, well, 5%, and like literally across the board, it's 5% unless they're measuring it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if we trim off the 5%, we're still like 30% different or, you know, something really big and different usually. And when I've actually asked growers, 
can you measure this? Like weigh your pot before and after an irrigation event, you know, so that we can see how the water changes, uh, the water content of that media changes. It almost perfectly then aligns with our calculations, but you have to ask the grower to take this measurement themselves or else they don't believe it. They just see like this little trickle of water, but they didn't realize that it was also a little trickle of water that they really irrigated with. So I love that you're doing that. Is, is there a percentage that you target for leachate? And, and maybe it changes throughout the course of the life cycle. Yeah, it's generally uh, 15 to 20% we're looking for, but we're, that's a very flexible number depending on, you know, what our goals are as far as what we're feeding at the time. But yeah, that's a, a really interesting point that just goes to show the importance of measuring that because it's not only, you know, a tool for the grower to manage, you know, our irrigation and fertigation practices in a way that, you know, is conducive to plant health, but it's also really important for properly specking your dehumidification equipment. Yeah, and the more data that we have, not just how much you're irrigating, but how much you're, you're draining away, then we can all, all the design professionals out there can do a better job at estimating your transpiration rate and what your dehumidification capacity is. Because if we assume one gallon per pot per day, what which is, I mean, Mallory, I don't know if you knew this is like the industry standard. <laughs> It's, it's slowly coming down. I would say now we hear more like half a gallon per pot per day. And I don't know if the one gallon was based on the type of media or just based on a whole number that, you know, sounded good or, or what it was. But, you know, if going back to that comment about over dehumidification, if you assume 75 degrees and 50% and one gallon per pot per day, and now you uh, lower your VPD, increase, you know, you're more like 80 degrees and 65% relative humidity, and you're really only irrigating with, you know, 0.35 gallons per pot per day, if you take off that 15 or 20%, of course, you're going to over dehumidify because all of the assumptions, all of the inputs that you provided to us or to the HVAC manufacturer, whatever, is way overblown right? I mean, you said you're going to put way more water in and you're going to give it this really way more challenging environment than what you really are doing. You're going to over dehumidify your space. So having these numbers is going to make everyone's life, you know, everyone's life better, especially the grower and the plant. Absolutely. Do you guys do any in-house research? We're just constantly in R&D mode. Uh, we I like hearing that. We have so many fun little projects, not to, you know, not to the extent that um, we could if we had the time and space. And that was kind of like something that, you know, we, we really wanted to allocate time and resources to as a company. You know, we're, we're across the board, all of our facilities are 100% production. We're not really dedicating space um, or time specifically to like really formal uh, research and development projects. But, you know, growers, I think, naturally have a desire to incorporate those kinds of things wherever they can possibly squeeze them in without jeopardizing production and it's not tough to do depending on what what it is that you're that you're looking to try so yeah we do a ton of that I would say it's it seems more rare the case that growers aren't either dedicating a space to do some sort of in-house R&D 
or aren't just, you know, I mean, you're playing with the variables all the time. I get concerned when you're turning too many knobs <laughs> because then you won't know uh, necessarily which of those knobs affected the production of your plant uh, and which didn't, or maybe they all work together. But yeah, it seems like all of you are very curious about your plants and about making them happier and more productive. So I'm glad to hear that. And it can be really easy too to just like get overexcited about trying something different and wanting to pull too many levers at once, but it 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 definitely can um, prolong the conclusion of whatever it is that you're doing if you just are adding in too many variables or not considering how they affect one another. So, yeah. you know, having having excitement for trying new things is great, but you also have to kind of reel it in sometimes and understand that. You're going to sacrifice the quality of, of the trial or the data that you're capturing if you don't keep it organized and focus on one thing at a time. Do you consider the cannabis industry or controlled environment ag, whichever one you want to, to um, be specific about, but do you consider the industry more competitive or collaborative? Speaking to the horticulture industry specifically, my time there, I felt that that was extremely collaborative. I was young in my career, so I didn't have as much as as much of a network as I do now, but I do recall that there were a lot of events um, that took place and a lot of open communication and knowledge being shared. And there really wasn't a whole lot of concerns with like IP and stuff of that nature. Cannabis, on the other hand, was a bit of a culture shock to me when I made that transition because I did not find it to be collaborative nearly to the extent that you might find in like ornamentals or veggies. And that makes sense because it's a new industry. It's very competitive. There's a lot of folks that um, are in it for, for different reasons and may have, you know, their own goals in mind. But I do think that for as long as I've been in the cannabis space, it has gotten a lot more collaborative over time. And that's been great to see. Is that collaboration mostly between you growers sharing your experiences and do's and don'ts and lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think things like this, like your podcast, for example, uh, is a great example of that, that collaboration increasing over the years. I'm, uh, when I got your email uh, about doing the podcast, I, I kind of felt like I was emerging from under a rock because I've not really been super engaged with my network. But when I do check in, I do see that a lot of folks are having more discussions and more detailed and open discussions than we did, you know, say like three or four years ago, people are a lot more willing to share things. I think there's an understanding that we all just want to get to the same place. We all want each other to be successful. And there's, there's tons of information out there that, you know, doesn't have to be like top secret or, or kept close to the chest. It's a lot of it's common knowledge at this point. If we can openly share it, we can save each other time and, and energy and, and getting to the end goal of, you know, steering the crop where we want it to. Yeah. And, and I feel like for cannabis, especially one of the added benefits of being more collaborative to be more successful is being able to increase maybe the, the credibility of mm -hmm. the industry within the public sphere that if you guys are all working together and, and trying to manage resources better. And I mean, of course you guys have to pass lab tests and, and all these things for consumer safety, but even doing a better job there 
and uh, being more successful there that in, yeah, in the public eye, you guys are, uh, you know, the cannabis industry is doing more good than harm potentially. And so I, I see benef- the added benefit of that as well. Oh yeah, I, I agree completely. Treat, treating it more like any other commodity certainly helps break that stigma. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to ask you a question because you brought this term up a few times and it doesn't come up very often in these conversations. You have talked about steering the plant. What does that mean? So the way I think about that is using the tools that you have as a grower uh, to manipulate the environment and in turn manipulate the crop to get the type of growth that you're targeting, to get the yields that you're targeting. So is that one of the benefits of growing in controlled environment agriculture, being able to manipulate those variables? Mm-hmm. And, and can you do it better in, in a warehouse than you can in a greenhouse? Or could you do the same thing in a greenhouse just as easily? I think you can do the same thing in a greenhouse just as easily. It, you know, if you've got the equipment and a control system that has that level of sophistication, there's almost no end to what a, a really built out and robust system can achieve as far as really tweaking and dialing in what it is that you're trying to provide the crop, which honestly is so exciting to me and why I love what I do. Yeah. Plants are cool. What do you love about plants? I love the color green in general. (laughs) Um, I (laughs) I love that there's so many different types and that they have so many different uses. Also, another thing that I I think I meant to touch on when we first kicked off, like why I kind of got into the space that I did is aromatherapy. I think aromatherapy is the coolest thing. And I love the smell of cannabis. And I love that there's such a wide variety of terpenes and different cultivars and combinations of terpenes that before you even consume it, whether that be, you know, smokable or a a different product, the first part of that experience for me, or in my opinion, is the smell. The smell is something, aroma in general, is something that has the capability of immediately changing your mood. And I just find that so cool. Worked in an ornamental nursery. Did it smell like flowers? It depends on the season and what we were growing. Um, But yeah, we had some really fragrant flowers. Alyssum is a really sweet smelling flower. Verbena is another one that smells amazing. Um, We had herbs and veggies too. So yeah, not a lot, a lot hits the nose. And um, that was, that was a really fun part of working at Dickman Farms. Did you ever have to implement odor control for a flower nursery? You know, not that I'm aware of that, that kind of thing was maybe a little bit above my head at the time, but I don't recall that being a thing. No, it's definitely a case. You know, I'm asking, right? I mean, why, why is cannabis flower considered an odor as opposed to an aroma? I love that you said aroma where Mm -hmm. like you could have a flower nursery that might also like have all these aromas, or you might be, um, you know, in, 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 an agricultural, uh, area and, and smell other smells associated with the production or processing of that Mm -hmm. crop. And I mean, why, why is cannabis so picked on when it comes to smell? That's a good question. And that's something that I definitely see falling away, like in the industry over time. 
Um, I know that it's kind of like a compliance thing currently, depending on where you're operating, because it is supposed to be like a low profile thing. Like most areas don't want it to be like a loud in your face kind of thing. Like, oh, there's a weed factory right there. Generally want it to be, you know, kind of inconspicuous, but some people just don't like the smell. And it's, I guess it's not for everybody, but I personally love it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the smell of geraniums and I wish someone would mitigate the odors from those. <laughs> I, I can understand that completely. I don't like the smell of them either. Um, I also don't like the smell of petunias. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's all in the nose of the beholder, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think you bring up a good point that maybe odor control really comes out of the idea of, you know, having these facilities on the down low, right on the DL that it, they're meant to be sort of hidden and inconspicuous. And if you can smell them, you know, they're there. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, that's, that's a bad thing. Yeah. I do think that it's more of like a compliance safety and security thing because if you can't smell it you don't necessarily know it's there and then I guess that keeps the the producer maybe a little bit uh, more safe from the public yeah that's true that's true how do you see the cannabis industry evolving over the next five to ten years is there anything that that you're seeing develop that uh, is making you excited for the future so uh, I have to admit I've been um, a little out of the loop with all of the fun stuff that's going on in the industry. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting caught up with all the advancements that are being made. But I do know uh, some things that I expect over the next few years. What we just talked about is one of them. Um, I feel like odor control is going to fall away potentially and the stigma around the, the plant um, you know, will continue to dissipate as we've seen over the years. I also see a lot of work being done in terms of sustainability, and and that's amazing, and I'm so grateful for the people who are dedicating their time to solving for issues such as that. Um, It's something that our industry hasn't really prioritized, but I think we're at a place now where, you know, it's starting to be something that we can talk about more and focus on more, and there's people out there who are working really hard to put programs into place that make that kind of thing more accessible to growers and more appealing and potentially more affordable as well, which is great. That is great. Okay. So last question for you, what do plants crave? What do plants crave? Plants crave to be cozy. They just want to be comfy. They don't, they don't really care about a whole lot other than their basic necessities. And I think we could all learn something from them. <laughs> do they not need to be stressed a little though? Oh, they absolutely do. There, there's a certain amount of stress on plants that's actually very good for them, as is with humans. Like, you know, we all need a, there's a healthy amount of stress that helps us to, to grow as people. And there's a healthy amount of stress that can be put on plants that helps them uh, be better in the end as well. So being cozy means to be comfortable, but not too comfortable. Right. <laughs> not comfortable 100% of the time. You've got to, you've got to kind of push them to their limits and uh, there's reward there. We talked about it a little bit, but like implementing drought stress on cannabis is an example of uh, a stress that can actually be really beneficial to the plant. Throughout the life cycle of the plant or just like at the end of flowering? I think throughout to an extent, but maybe more so at the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, research on uh, tomato plants has shown that if you start a, a tomato plant seedling with less water, if you can actually make it a drought tolerant plant, that by the time it grows into an adult, it matures uh, into a fruit bearing plant, that it needs less water. Like it's, it, you have trained it to need less water. And I love that. I mean, I want to see more of that. I, I really feel like when it comes to controlled environment agriculture, that water conservation and reducing the water we need to produce our agricultural products is one of its biggest benefits. And if we can further that by training it to need less water and we're in a controlled environment and we can collect the water already that, that it's transpiring, I mean, wow, that could be so impactful. Oh, huge. Absolutely. I, I would certainly encourage anyone listening to, to give that a try. You don't have to, you know, stress your plant to the point of wilt or kill it. Um, but there's a certain amount of stress from wilt and reducing your water frequency or volume that it is really conducive to plant health and has obvious benefits as far as um, cost savings and the impact that we all have on the environment with the crops that we're producing. Yeah, I mean, less water also means less nutrients, which means less consumable costs. I mean, it just, yeah, perpetuates. And another impact there is our grow out west in Nevada, we have to pay for the water that's removed. So the less water we use, that's less that we have to worry about paying for getting rid of. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, ideal situation would be using that water, reclaiming it, recycling it, treating it, getting it back into your system. But Um, All right. So I have uh, three rapid fire questions for you. Uh, Are you ready? They're supposed to be fun. So no pressure. Okay. Shoot. Okay. All right. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? Plants are introverts, in my opinion. Why? I think that they, uh, I mean, I guess it depends on the plant. Some plants are kind of social, like they'll react to certain uh, sensations, but generally they're they're introverts. They kind of keep to themselves. They want to be noticed, but they don't really want to interact with you necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the sensitive plant, I think, I think scientific name is mimosa pudica I honestly don't even know where it's native to but when you touch it it goes like this you can see me on the camera wow and the leaves like closing down she's she's using her hand and her fingers to close it down that that's an introvert for sure it's like don't touch me leave me alone (laughs) (laughs) I, I also just like the thought of plants being vain and look at me but don't talk to me That's why they're so popular on Instagram, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can cannabis create a more sustainable world and how? Yes. Oh, yes. In so many ways. As a commodity, uh, there's so many uses for it medicinally, recreationally. The products that can be produced from fibers, the possibilities are just endless there. So my my answer to that is a strong yes. Okay. If you could ask a plant anything, and it could respond, it could talk back to you, what would you ask it? Mm -hmm. And maybe what plant would it be? Wow, that's a tough one. I would say 
probably my orchid plant. I would probably ask my orchid plant what the heck it wants from me because no matter what I try, it doesn't seem to be satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) It also likes a dry media, doesn't it? It does. And actually, um, it's probably honestly not that complicated of a plant. I just really haven't taken the time to understand it better, but it's one that it feels mystical to me because my great grandmother loved orchids and she would call me every once in a while and, you know, ask me for help with her orchid. And I just felt so bad because I never had the answer for her. She actually passed away last year at 105. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. She was an incredible woman, but her secret to success with her orchid that she found to work was giving it an ice cube, like once a month or something. How would she apply the ice cube? Well, I'll have to give that a try. I'm not sure. Just just set it on top of the media and hope for the best, I guess. <laughs> so is it like keeping the roots cool? I think it's just like the um the slow and extended release of the water into the media. Okay, you have to try this and report back. <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, there's there's a, a million places that I could look for answers. I just haven't really taken the time, but I've got one orchid that I've kept alive for longer than I have previously. Um, I've had it for two and a half years and it's bloomed a couple of times and it got really close to pushing out flowers around Christmas time. And I think I got a little bit too excited and I overwatered it. So again, overwatering is like, it's such an easy thing to do. And so just, just put down the watering can. I feel like maybe it's because it's the thing we feel like we have control over. Right. Is being able to water it. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, that is it. Thank you so much, Mallory. This is really nice getting to know you better and about how you fell in love with horticulture and and what you're doing with cannabis right now. Thank you for being a great grower within our industry. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing you out on the circuit again, hopefully in the nearest future. Yeah, let's get back to it, shall we? Please. That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Mallory Quinn of MedMen for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our next episode. Dr. Saba will be speaking to Nick Denny, Director of Cultivation for Holistic Industries. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.